Hi everyone, my name is David. I'm the pastor of Foundation Church Belfast and it's my privilege to bring you this teaching today uh, on the subject of suffering. Why are we talking about suffering? Well, we have been working through as a church uh, the, the letter of James, the letter that James wrote and uh, became part of the New Testament and the series is entitled Real Religion. And today, the, the verses that we've arrived to in our, in our systematic study have come on the subject of suffering. And that is uh, really pertinent to our scenario at the moment, uh, this, this worldwide, this pandemic uh, coronavirus. So suffering is something that's going to be very much on our minds, either actual suffering because of coronavirus or, or fear of suffering. But even aside from that, suffering is a part of the ordinary human existence. It, it is something that will happen to all of us in some form or other at some part in our lives. It is, it is part and parcel of living as a human being in a, in a fallen and broken world. And how you and I deal with suffering reveals much about our underlying philosophy of life. You know, the, how we answer the big questions. Um, why am I here? How did I come to be here? What's the problem with the world? And is there any hope? Is there any fix or purpose for the future? Much of that is manifested and, and, and comes out in the way that we deal with suffering. For some people, suffering is just a, a cruel and, and purposeless and pointless part of, of human existence, but it, it has no purpose. It is just something we have to grin and bear. We have to just grit the teeth and get through it. Other people see purpose in suffering, they see a point. And certainly Christianity has, has always had a high view of suffering. No, suffering itself is not good. The things that we are suffering from are not good. And yet Christianity has shown that even in the midst of great suffering, there is hope, there is a, there is a point. Indeed, at the center of the Christian faith, there is a suffering savior. Jesus Christ was known as the man of sorrows. He knew all about suffering, indeed, he went through a tremendous amount of suffering and it's actually in his suffering that we can experience salvation. So the Christian faith has a very high view of, of, of suffering. So today we're going to read these verses together, we're going to try and explain uh, where, where we come from on this, on this subject. Uh, so let me just read to you from the Bible first of all. Here's my Bible. Uh, I'm going to read to you from James 5, sorry, verses 7 through to 11. Be patient therefore, brothers. He says brothers, he refers to uh, brothers and sisters, spiritual brothers and sisters in the church. Be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until he receives uh, the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door, and as an example of suffering... And patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We're going to look at this, uh, these texts, this text under four headings. Number one, we're going to look at the problem with suffering. Number two, we're going to look at the pattern for suffering that the Bible here gives us. Number three, we're going to look at the purpose for suffering. You know, what's the point of it? 
And fourthly, we're gonna, we're gonna ask ourselves, are there things that we can do within suffering that will provoke and point us towards the hope that we have in the future? And the answer is yes, and we're gonna look at those things uh, towards the end of this message. So number one, part one, the problem with suffering. We're not exactly sure from just reading those verses, the kind of suffering that James is seeing in the churches that he's writing to, uh, the kind of suffering that's been experienced. The only thing that we do get is in the previous verses that we haven't read together, um, James is addressing the rich within the church and the poor and how some of the rich are oppressing the poor, denying their wages, withholding the, their wages, not giving what is due, uh, and therefore the poor are sort of crying out, they're, they're destitute, they're, they're in poverty. And then James turns to this subject right today of, of suffering. So it could be that he's talking about those who are suffering because of lack of food, lack of money. But I think this teaching that we're going to look at today applies to all forms of suffering uh, that any human being is likely to go through. <clears throat> and, and, and what is his advice, what is his teaching towards those, particularly within the churches, that are suffering? He says it twice. He says it in verse 7 and verse 8. He says, be patient. When you are suffering, he says, be patient. Evidently, James, and he knows intimately the churches that he's writing to, that are reading this letter originally, he sees some level of impatience in those who are suffering and struggling, going through hard times. And of course, that's, that's pretty understandable, isn't it? That someone might feel impatient when it comes to suffering. But James tries to take it a little further. He sees cracks, he sees issues, he sees problems that will come out of those who are dealing with suffering by impatience. Sufferers, it turns out, according to James, are susceptible. They are susceptible to attack. They are susceptible to this kind of, um, this kind of character flaw of impatience. Before we ask why and what that means, let's, let's look at the kind of impatience that James sees. First of all, he says that we are, those who are suffering are impatient towards God. He mentions twice uh, the coming of the Lord in verse 7, the coming of the Lord in verse 8. He says, be patient for the coming of the Lord. Of course, we have those who are in some form rather suffering, who are oppressed, perhaps they've been mistreated as a source of their suffering. They want an end to all this. They're, they're crying out to God for release, deliverance. Come on, Lord, end this. Come on. And for whatever reason, known only to God himself, the end has not come. The suffering has not been terminated. It continues on and on and on and on. And so they have become impatient with God. And when you're in that position, when you're becoming impatient with God, you say, God, I've prayed for this. I've asked that you would take away this suffering and it's not gone. Then this is what James is saying. He's saying these cracks start to open up because when we start to grow in impatience towards God, we start to doubt him. We start to doubt his goodness towards us. We start to doubt that he is what he says he is. He is our good father. We start to doubt that. We become angry. We start to ask why. We start to lash out. And James is saying, if you're in that position, if you're suffering and you're starting to become angry or resentful or doubting towards God or impatient, 
He says, be patient. Be patient. Because we're being impatient towards God. But he's also saying and seeing we are, those who are suffering, that he can, he's writing to, we're being impatient towards one another. He says in verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Do not grumble against one another. Not only are we frustrated and angry and impatient with God, why haven't you stopped this, Lord? But that starts to seep out and manifest itself in the, in the community towards one another. We're saying, we're seeing people who are suffering being frustrated with others within their community. Perhaps we are, if we are suffering, we are, we are more easily wounded, more easily annoyed, more, more sensitive because we are so inflamed and so struggling. You know, it's often said, isn't it, that hurting people hurt people. And so maybe James is identifying this trait and he's saying, brothers and sisters, do not grumble. Do not be impatient with one another, even when you're suffering. Can you see the kind of thing that James is, is getting at here? I, I wonder if you can relate to that yourself at all, especially if you are suffering at this, this moment. Impatience towards God, impatience towards one another, impatience towards loved ones who are in your life. We're all prone to some level of impatience when the stakes are high. Just think of Tesco with all this panic buying, these people pushing past you. Impatient, impatient, impatient. But that kind of attitude can seep to all of life and we can become impatient and, and the cracks can start to appear on the surface. We can then become open to various other sort of sins and, and traits and, and like cynicism and, and bitterness. We can think it's acceptable to allow certain character traits to remain in our certain bad attitudes to dominate in our behavior or in our character. We think, well, I'm suffering, so therefore I'm allowed to behave like this. I'm allowed to get angry in this way without you challenging that anger. I'm allowed to grumble because I'm suffering. We hit out, we vent. We think we're due special treatment in some ways. Of course, we saw earlier on in the, the book of James that, particularly James chapter one, that how you respond to suffering reveals your innermost beliefs, your deepest core beliefs. How you respond to suffering is directly related to your character. And so I wonder, as you listen to this, what does suffering reveal in you when you go through those hard times? So we can see the problem with suffering. That's part one. The pattern of suffering. How should we suffer? Well, we are given two images here, two patterns, <clears throat> if you like. The first is found in verse seven and eight. Talk about the farmer. Uh, he gives us this idea of a, a farmer who's waiting for this precious fruit from the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. He's got this, this picture in our, in our minds of a farmer who knows that good stuff is coming. He knows that the harvest is going to come. This precious, this valuable produce It's worth waiting for. It's worth bearing out the time because he knows what's ahead. He says, in the, in, in the same way, you sufferer, be patient because good times, uh, hope, goodness, something valuable is ahead of you. 
And then he starts talking about those early and late rains, which would have been a, a familiar concept if you were living at the time in the ancient Near East, a sort of an agrarian society, you would have known all about the early and the late rains, but perhaps we're not quite so familiar with the idea. Well, in September, after a long summer of, of, of baking sunshine, the, the, the ground is incredibly hard, the first rains, the early rains came, and they had the effect of softening the hard ground, enabling the sower to come along and sow seeds into the ground, to turn the ground over and so that the seeds may penetrate the ground and so that there might be enough moisture for the seeds to germinate and start the growing process. But then you came uh, several months later, in, in around April time, uh, to the later rains, uh, more uh, in terms of volume, much, much more water than the earlier rains. And they had the effect of providing the nourishment, uh, the watering required to bring um, what had been planted back in September up uh, to fruit and to harvest. And the point with this is that it happens every year, like clockwork, every year, early rain, late rain, early rain, late rain, early rain, late rain. Every time there was always this valuable produce, this precious fruit that grew up as a result. The farmer knew it, the sower knew it, the harvester knew it, everybody knew it, that's how it was. And yet the interesting thing was the farmer, the sower, the harvester, all the people involved were powerless to change the early rain and the late rain. They, they, they knew it was in God's hands. They, they, they knew that that was part of the way he had wired it up. And so they patiently allowed the time it took for the fruit to come. And James is saying, you, O sufferer, in the same way, be patient. But you see, he's talking about the early rain and the late rain. And then he mentions twice, the coming of the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord is at hand. How do these two things relate to each other, the, the, the rains and the coming of the Lord? Well, Christians are famous, of course, for, for celebrating the first coming uh, of the Son of God at Christmas, uh, God in human form. And that's a wonderful, a wonderful time of celebration, of course. But, but Christmas is not uh, an isolated event in, in the whole sort of a grand scheme of, of, of salvation history. Um, Jesus came, he was predicted by the prophets, he was promised uh, to, to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.15, he was sort of uh, promised again through Abraham, through, through Israel, through the, you know, reinforced by the, the Hebrew prophets, witnessed by the apostles, uh, this message was propagated by the church. Jesus came. And in Jesus came, the, the, effectively the early rain had come. The good news had been sown in the ground. Uh, the facts were there. His death, his resurrection, the grave was empty. This is all the, the early rain. This is all the, the seed going into the ground. But James is saying the early rain is not the only rain because you've got the, the later rain as well. The Lord is coming, he says. There is, a, there is a second part. There is more that is coming. Yes, the early rain has come. Yes, the seeds have been sown. Yes, Jesus has come, but he's coming again. The Lord is at hand, he says, twice. And he's saying to those who are suffering, the second coming of Jesus that is yet to happen, he's not yet come back. The second coming of Jesus 
is as sure as the first coming of Jesus. Just like the early rain meant that the later rain is definitely going to happen, the movement is always happening, the first coming of Jesus means that the second coming of Jesus is always going to happen, is guaranteed to come. Effectively, we stand between two advents, the first advent, the first coming, and the second coming of Jesus. And so James is saying to the sufferers, have patience because Jesus is coming again. The harvest is nearing completion. One day he will return. Have patience like the farmer waiting for the produce to come up from the ground. Wait for Jesus. So the first pattern is right there, like the farmer waiting for the later rain. Wait, Jesus is coming. But the second pattern that we are then given uh, for suffering, for those within the church, that is for suffering, is in verse 10. He says, take for an example of suffering and endurance the prophets. Now, James is moving from a metaphor of the farmer to actual real life historic examples. He's talking about, of course, the, the, the great Hebrew prophets of the Old Testament. And he said, look at them, look at them all. Meditate on them because he says they are an example of suffering and patience. They are people who knew what it was like to go through suffering. They uh, were suffering because of God, because of the message that he had given them to, to share with all Israel. And yet he says they remained steadfast. They, were, they endured. They were faithful. You know, they, they fought the good fight, as the Apostle Paul would later go on to say. And then he says, consider them. You know, reflect on how they did it because you can learn about how to suffer from looking at the, the Old Testament prophets. And then he draws our attention specifically to one character in the Old Testament. He says, behold, uh, we consider blessed those who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Who is Job? Uh, Job is a character in the Old Testament. The book of Job um, is about halfway through the the, the 66 books of the Bible, if you were to go in the middle. But actually, the book of Job is one of the earliest books in all of Hebrew literature. It's one of the earliest books. Job probably was alive and ministered, you know, and, and went through his, um, his suffering roughly at the same time as Abraham, many thousands of years ago. And Job is, is famous, a massive book in the Bible with his name attached to it. Um, Job is famous because he is described in verse 1, of Job chapter 1 as a righteous sufferer. He was, he was described as blameless and upright. He was a man who had wealth. He was a man who had property. He was a man who had great health. He had a wonderful family. At the beginning of his interactions with God, it says that God took all that away. Satan wanted to test Job. Satan said, Job only loves you, God, because you've given him all that stuff. Take that away and he'll curse you to your face. So God said, okay, okay, we'll test him. So they took it all away. God allowed it to be taken away. Even Job's wife got on his back and said, Job, look at everything that God has taken away. He's taken away your property, your health, your family. Curse God and die, she said. But it goes on to say, in all of this, in all of this, all this struggling, all this suffering, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. 
He did no, no sin was found on his lips. Job was an example, is an example of suffering and patience and endurance. But you see, he wasn't passive in his suffering. He wasn't giving some sort of unquestioning submission where he just sort of laid back in some sort of serene experience and just let suffering wash over him. No, no, no. The book of Job is one long book of his massive struggle and questioning with God. Sometimes he even defied God. He shouted at God. But throughout all of it, it says Job never finally turned his back on God. And God certainly never turned his back on Job. Job endured. He was steadfast. And therefore, James says to the churches, to the people that he's writing to, he says, look at Job. Look at his steadfastness. Look at his example. So I wonder if you, when you hear these two patterns for suffering, if any one of them chimes with you, anyone hits home, do you need to have more of the patience of the farmer who, who knows that the early rain has come, but the, the later rain is definitely going to come, the second coming of Jesus? Is that what you need in your suffering right now? Maybe you need to go back and examine the steadfastness of the prophets. Most of them suffered in ways that you and I will never suffer in, and yet uh, the hope in God was such that they were steadfast, they were solid. Go back, says James, and, and look at those guys. Consider them. Which one of those do you need? Well, we're coming now to point three, part three in our teaching through James chapter five. Uh, on the subject of suffering. We've looked at the problem of suffering. Uh, we've just thought about two patterns of suffering that the, 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 these verses give us, how we can deal with it. Um, now we're going to look at the purpose of suffering. And this really gets to the heart of, of much of our understanding of suffering from, from a biblical perspective. What is the purpose of suffering? Why do we suffer? Why is suffering a thing? Depending on your worldview, depending on your underlying sort of philosophy of how you see the world working and wired up, uh, you will approach this question of suffering in very different ways. For some people, especially from a, maybe I'll say an atheistic or secular worldview, uh, they generally will probably con con conclude that suffering is ultimately pointless, philosophically pointless. It has no goal, no end. It is just a, a bare fact of human existence. We just have to push through it. There is no point. Uh, perhaps to the Buddhist, uh, suffering is considered to be an illusion. It's not real. Um, for a Muslim, suffering is, is, is just uh, often met with, with the term, inshallah, God willing, God wills it. You know, it's just what God has willed, so therefore it is what it is. It's sort of a fatalistic view, perhaps. But what I want to show you here is the Christian worldview, the Christian uh, um, position towards suffering says that actually suffering itself is bad, it is real, it is bad, but through it, through it there can be, and there is indeed purpose, there is a point to it. Verse 11, uh, James chapter 5 verse 11 says this, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, we've just covered that, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, wait for it, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate 
and merciful. The purpose of suffering, according to James, one of the purposes anyway, is so that the Lord, God himself, may demonstrate his character and show himself to be what he is to you, which is compassionate and merciful. Not just a, a glimpse of his compassion, but in suffering, James is saying it is possible for you to have a personal experience, a deep personal knowledge that God is indeed compassionate and he's merciful. And you will get, says James, you will get to receive that and experience that and know that and taste it. You will receive it and see how that works for yourself, how that will speak into your suffering. That is one of the purposes of suffering, according to James. I want to give you a bit of New Testament Greek here. Who doesn't love a bit of Greek? Especially this word I'm about to teach you. The word compassion, in the original Greek, which James was written in Greek, the original Greek is polysplanknos. Polysplanknos, what a great word. The word splanknos, on its own, without the poly, but the word splanknos is literally your guts, it's your intestines. So this isn't, however, the way it's used in Greek is not here a reference to anatomy, but it is a byword to that deep-seated emotion, that core emotion, that drive and that passion that someone may have that evokes a physical and mental response, the gut. And we, we talk, don't we, about gut feeling. We might say to someone, what's your gut saying? Gut check. You know, we, we know even in the English language that, that that refers to something that's sort of deep and almost imperceptible, something profound within us. But it, but it, but it can speak, it can, you know, it, it evokes us to some, something or other. And poly, the bit at the beginning of splanknos, poly means many or much. So what we're saying here, the word behind compassion is polysplanknos, much deep affection, much deep drive, much deep response. That is the word that underlies, underlines compassion. So what we're saying here is that God's compassion is deep, it is profound, and it is his determination to show affection to the afflicted and the suffering. That is compassion. It is that gut-wrenching, gut-level, emoting, driving force. That is compassion. And James is saying, in suffering, it is possible for you to be the recipient of God's gut-wrenching action towards you, his, his, his deeply emitted love and action towards you. And mercy, of course, the second part, mercy. God's will, his desire to pardon, to forgive, to wash and clean and restore. Compassion and mercy can be known, experienced and given to you in ways that you would not otherwise have known had you not have gone through times of suffering. That is what is yours, says James, in God. And that is part of the purpose of suffering, according to the Bible, for the believer in Jesus. 
In fact, we could say that suffering is one of the deepest and most profound ways that God would want to demonstrate himself to his people. He wants to provide for his people. He wants to pour out himself to his people. More compassion. He wants to give them more mercy. He wants to allow the sufferer to experience more of himself than would otherwise have been possible any other way. Let me say that again. Through suffering, God would have the sufferer experience more of his compassion and mercy than would otherwise have been possible any other way. I wonder if you are suffering now, either in, in body, through physical pain. Maybe you're suffering in your mind through, through, through mental ill health, through depression, through anxiety, through suicidal thoughts. Maybe you're suffering in your spirit, spiritual blackness, darkness, angst. Could it be that God in this season right now wants to show you his compassion? He wants to show you his mercy. He wants you to experience that and know that in ways that you could never have done in health. Of course, this looks different for each sufferer. Sometimes God's compassion and mercy upon you might look like complete resolution of your suffering. He might just say, that's it, an end, stop, over. And you'll be delivered to, to, to times of, of freedom. Another way that it might, uh, you might experience this is through a partial resolution, a lowering or an improvement of your, your circumstances. You might just get a break in your suffering. You know, a window, a, a, a glimpse of freedom. You might get a total reversal of resource, of your fortunes, rather like Job himself did. For you, it might be in your time of suffering that, 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 that this is all about God wanting to give you a deeper knowledge, deeper experience of himself. He wants to assure you of your faith and assure you of his love for you through suffering. Of course, individual experiences and, and, and experiences of the compassion and mercy of God may vary from person to person, all down to God's own sovereign choice and, and his purposes for each of us. And it's going to be different for each sufferer and form of suffering. But the one thing that is clear, that is, that is utterly dependable, and this is what James uh, brings us into focus on, no matter how, what experience of suffering and how God demonstrates his compassion and mercy to you in the here and now, no matter that, this is the thing that James wants us to focus on. God will demonstrate fully and finally his compassion and his mercy without doubt for all to see when Jesus Christ comes again. That second reign, that second coming, when the Lord returns, God will show without a shadow of a doubt his compassion and his mercy on you and your suffering. Because when that happens, then when Jesus appears in glory and victory, then we will receive lavish and unending compassion and mercy as our suffering is ended, as evil is wiped out, as our pain is gone, our sin is, is, is completely destroyed and we enter the eternal rest in the presence of God himself. 
You know, Christian churches quite often use the, the, the ancient encouragement. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ shall come again. He is coming. That is the, 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 the great hope of the Christian faith. Even in the Apostles' Creed, which we use quite regularly at Foundation Church, along with the church of all the ages, both Protestant and Catholic, we all confess together, Jesus, he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. We, we all believe this. The angels said to the apostles just after Jesus had ascended to heaven, they said, this Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He will come back. Does this encourage you? Maybe you are suffering now and, and whatever it is, even if your life right now feels like an entire catalogue of suffering upon suffering upon suffering, if you are a believer in Jesus, may I encourage you strongly and remind you it will end. It will be finished. It may come sooner than you think. Maybe not. But as surely as Christ came on the first advent of the first Christmas, so surely will he come again and make all things new. And if you're a Christian, then you need to know this. Your suffering is not the final word. Your suffering is not the final word. It will not ultimately define you. The purpose of suffering. I want to look now at the practice of suffering. What can we do in times of suffering? How should we respond? The key is here in verse 8 of James chapter 5. James says to those who are suffering, he says, Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. This is key. This is key. To establish your heart means to fix it, to strengthen it, to set it in a certain position or in a certain direction. Lash it down. You know, when bad things are happening, when we know the bad things are about to happen, we take preparations for that, right? Just think of uh, the warning when the hurricane sirens go off and, and people are told prepare get ready the hurricane's coming and so you see pictures of people <clears throat> putting paneling up across their, their their windows to protect them nailing down everything that can move battening down the hatches bolstering their defenses putting flood defenses around their houses get ready because it's coming and in the same way james encourages us to establish our hearts, lash it down, fix it, so it's going to remain steady. Even in your suffering, don't, it's not like before you get suffering, then even in your suffering, James is saying, you can do this. You can establish your heart. So the question is, okay, fine, we can establish our hearts, we can fix it, but, but into what? What position, what direction should our hearts be established? Well, James is clear. He is clear as day. He says... The Lord is coming. Establish your hearts, he said, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It is near. Jesus himself, he is the one to, to whom you fasten your heart. He's the one 
uh, that you set your heart towards. <clears throat> Jesus, of course, uh, is the bringer and the author of God's compassion and God's mercy. It is through Jesus, it is by Jesus that you and I will receive uh, tangibly the compassion and the mercy. It's guaranteed to us through him. Jesus is the answer to the prophets. He's the one that the prophets pointed to. He's the one that the apostles witnessed. He's the one that the church proclaims. It's all about him. It's his death. It's his resurrection. It is God's plan of redemption. He is the one that we are to fix our hearts into, that we are positioned towards, that we direct ourselves to. It is God given, God in Christ rather, given to us in the gospel, the good news, as applied by the Holy Spirit to you and I and to every sufferer. That is how you should fix or what to what you should fix your heart to. It is him, it is him alone. But you see in suffering, <clears throat> the tendency is, I think, is that we will grab at anything or anyone that we think will alleviate our suffering. We're, we're desperate for help, of course. We're desperate for strength, we're desperate for support. We're desperate for validation, from assur for assurance from somewhere. Our hearts will go after anything. Uh, anything, we'll take anything to, to, to alleviate and make this suffering better. But often, I, I think we settle for second best. Um, we, we can fix ourselves onto good things, but ultimately, those good things, are we're looking for them to provide what only God can ultimately provide. We, we, we may look to our relationships, we may look to our family, to our children, to, to alleviate, to, to, to palliate our, our suffering. We, but what we'll end up doing is we'll be putting pressure on good things, uh, the pressure that they cannot bear, because only God himself can, can give us what we need in our times of suffering. We put pressure on good things, but they're not God himself, right? But aside from that, even in our suffering, we can take it a step further. We can, we can lash ourselves onto things that are just bad for us, whether it's addictions, substances, drugs, alcohol, sex, obsessions of various kinds. We can end up into incredibly destructive patterns because we're trying to help ourselves in our times of suffering. But James is saying here, that won't work. It can't bear you up. It can't give you the strength and help you think it will give you. It can't, it can't sustain you. James says the only thing that you can establish your heart on is the Lord. It's Jesus. And it's the fact that he's coming again. Lash your heart onto that. So the question then, that I guess that sets up as, as we sort of come into a close, is how do we take hold of that? What do we actually do to take hold of Jesus? How do we actually fix our hearts, establish our hearts on Jesus. Well, uh, this is where the, the, the riches and the tradition of, of Christianity uh, is so helpful um, because uh, the Bible uh, gives us a number of means of grace. Uh, what is a means of grace? What is a mean of grace? It is, it is God's gift of himself to his people it is gifts that he gives in order for us to know him and to receive him and to experience him more and more in concrete ways. It is, they are his chosen means for saving, for sanctifying and for supplying uh, power to his people. 
supplying himself to his people. So what are these, these means of grace? Well, we, we talk very uh, briefly about them. God's word, prayer, and the sacraments are three key means of grace, three key ways that God will minister himself to you, especially in times of suffering, but not only, but especially pertinent in times of suffering. <coughs> when we take hold of these means of grace, these gifts that God gives us, we will establish our hearts. They will have the effect of, of drilling deep down into Jesus, fixing ourselves onto God, the word of God, prayer, and the sacraments. Number one, the word of God. How do we take the word of God and therefore uh, establish our hearts? Well, the word of God uh, as given to us in the scripture is uh, the way that we can cultivate a relationship with God by, by reading his word, by listening to his voice, by hearing it preached to us every week as we gather together at church or as we come together online uh, in this context. We're hearing God speak to us as we read the Bible, as we have it explained to us. It is God addressing us at our moment of need. You see, when we suffer, when we're going through suffering, it opens up our hearts to, to God's ways, to God's word rather, in ways that we may not experience otherwise. When times are less challenging, maybe we're less open, we're less aware of what he is saying. And so first of all, if we want to establish our hearts, if we want to protect ourselves and, and nourish ourselves through times of, uh, times of suffering, it is through the word of God. So come, come to church, come to our online community, hungry to hear, hungry with your, with your Bible. There's, there's loads of ways you could do that. Uh, we, we read the Bible together in groups. We'd love to, to have you join one of our Bible reading groups. Uh, we, we listen to the Bible being read to us every Sunday, particularly as we gather for worship and, and throughout the week as well in foundation communities. Um, we listen to preaching from the Bible, you know, and you can, you can catch up on a whole load of uh, teaching through our podcasts available on, on our website and through other, um, other ways as well. Ways that we're just hearing God speak to us through his word. So number one, when you're suffering, you want to establish your heart, get into the word of God. Okay. Number two, <clears throat> um, prayer. Second means of grace that God gives us to establish our hearts is prayer. Prayer is simply reflecting words back to God. It's speaking to him. We're the only part of all the created order that can actually speak back to God directly to him. Do you realize that? And in prayer during suffering, we can, we can speak to him. We can share our fears. Uh, <clears throat> we, can, we can share our experiences. We can reflect our hurts. We can, we can tell him our frustrations. We can bring our anger before God, our grievances. We can cry out for deliverance. We, 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 we can pray, Lord, end the suffering, end, end the oppression. It just seems to be, as we've gone through this, this series in the book of James, that, that God's heart is especially soft, especially open to the vulnerable, especially moved by those who are oppressed or, or afflicted, to those who cry out to God in, in, in times of pain and suffering. And so if that's you, and you're suffering right now, then know that God's heart, his ear is open to you. You're not praying to the ceiling. 
You're praying to a God who is a father who, who loves his children. Sometimes uh, it's difficult to pray. It's just, that's just the way it is. Uh, sometimes it's even impossible, especially if you're, going through, if you're going through suffering. But let me encourage you. Pray something rather than nothing. And even if it's just a few little words, God help me. God help me. Jesus, come to me. Little words like that are a prayer, a simple prayer, a simple cry. That's a great start. You could look at the verses that we've just been reading here and say, God help me. God help me. Help me to remain steadfast. Help me to be patient. Oh God, establish my heart. Remind me that Jesus is coming. You can start to use scriptures like this to pray back to God. Um, you, can, you can write prayers out in a little journal like, like this. This is a journal I use for, for writing prayers out. You can do that if you want, if that helps. Any way just to grease the wheels and get the wheels of prayer turning. I mean, I mean that spiritually, metaphorically. Uh, speaking to God, just start doing something rather than nothing. And your prayers will grow and your love for God and your heart will, will change as you do that. By the way, don't think that this has to be a solitary thing either. It's not just about praying alone, although that's good and that's a good thing to do. Pray with people. Even now, uh, we're, 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 we're sort of restricted in terms of our meetings with the coronavirus and all that. Uh, but, but find someone in, in our community. If you're not attached to any Christian community or any church, we'd love you to come uh, to, to, to get involved, even now, even electronically, even online. Uh, drop us a line. I'll give you some details later on. But, but, but so we can pray with you. We can, we can text pray each other. We can, we, can, we can FaceTime pray. Don't pray alone. The word prayer and finally sacraments. Bread and the wine. Communion. Baptism. More than just remembering Christ's suffering and his death and his resurrection, when we take the bread and when we take the wine, we are communing with Jesus. We are coming into union. We're being reminded of our union with him, fellowshipping with Jesus, really and truly, spiritually united to Jesus by faith. And the bread and the wine, when we take them into ourselves and we feed on them, they assure us and remind us of the promises of the gospel and they, they demonstrate what's going on. And, we, and there's something that happens when we take that, we chew it, we absorb it into our bodies. In the same way, we're bringing the life and death of Jesus by faith. We're, we're receiving that by faith. So there you have it. At Foundation, Foundation uh, Church Belfast, we are a community on mission. We do this together. And so we are <clears throat> in a community where there is no such thing as someone suffering by themselves. And so if you are, if that is you and you're listening to this and you feel like you've been going alone, we would love you to join us and connect with us, reach out and we would love to reach back and we'd love to bring you in and we'd love to introduce you and, 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 uh, and encourage you in, in the community that God is setting up. We'd love to just be a sort of community that asks one another, how can I demonstrate love to those in church? How can I encourage a sufferer to, to hold on to the means of grace? <clears throat> How can I encourage someone who's suffering to pray more, to, 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 to listen to God's word in the Bible? How, how can I practically do that? We're, we're, we're becoming the sort of people that asks questions like that, so no one suffering alone. We remind ourselves that we are fellow 
sufferers together at various times and in various ways, but we're pilgrims, we're on a journey. This place is not our home. Let me finish with the words of James. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. The later rain is on its way. Amen.